Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're getting dangerously close to the end of this study. We'll begin reading verse 11. We'll read through the end of the chapter. We will hopefully get that far today. Hebrews, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning verse 11 through verse 21. I'll bring you on the New King James Version. God's Word declares, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, for nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what... For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. <clears throat> did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ. But we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear lest, when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbiting, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we get into our text today. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. And we thank you for its power to hear life truth. Your word. Your very breath. And Lord, we pray that as we consider its truth, its force, its commands, that we might be ready to receive them, not as the words of man, but of the, as the very word of God. And Lord, we do recognize that there's a distinction between what men say and what your word declares. And yet your spirit takes your word and illuminates our minds and hearts to it, and we pray for his working this morning. That what is communicated might be in full accordance with your word of truth. And Lord, our dependence is not upon ourselves in the determination of that, but upon you. Give us that discernment but also, Lord, we recognize that we must participate with you in this process. It is necessary for us to humble ourselves, to seek you, to knock, to ask, to submit. And Lord, we pray that we might have that spirit within us, that willingness, that desire. Conform ourselves to your word rather than trying to manipulate your word to conform to our current beliefs, culture, and behaviors. And again, we need your help in all of this. For you are the one that must convict, and you've promised to do so, so we have great confidence in that. You've promised to give wisdom when it's asked, so we take confidence there as well. And so, Lord, we uh, depend upon you, and we pray that we might 
allow your working with all of its intentions and power to be effectual in us this morning. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2 Corinthians, we come to a portion of Scripture that Paul seems to be repeating some information, and certainly that is the case as he is culminating his argument. He wants to go back into some of the early aspects of this last third of the book where he is seeking to defend himself. And again, as I've stated on occasions, many feel that this is the lost second letter, that this is really the last few chapters of 2 Corinthians are really the true 2 Corinthians, and that the first um, chapters were 3 Corinthians. Uh, And there is some weight there, and perhaps most weighty is this passage before us. Um, Paul has a very uh, strong concern for the church, we'll put it like that. Um, He is going to use some of the strongest sarcasm that we have uh, in any of his writings, really, Um, And he is uh, obviously uh, deeply uh, disturbed at the possibility of what's coming. And this is in great contrast to what we found at the beginning of the book, where he was rejoicing that they were responsive to uh, his letters and were dealing with sin and were, were ridding their church to the degree that they were able and, and willing to do so of sin and uh, specifically the, the, the more public-natured sins, uh, but of the division as well. And so they certainly have a ways to go, um, but we see here that really Paul still has, or did have, if this was indeed the second letter, not part of the, the end of the third, um, we, we find him having a deep-seated concern. And he's going to finally articulate that at the end of this chapter, the last couple of verses. And so, as we move towards that, there's one or two very important verses in the process. But most of what we are going to be looking at in this passage is things that we have seen him discuss before. We have talked about the idea of him being forced into boasting uh, and forced to present to them his credentials, to uh, present to them anew, uh, all the things they really already did know about him, um, but he's now having to repeat that to them and remind them of it, uh, and also the force of what that means for them. And we've seen him do this in the past, that he's been forced to do something he didn't want to do, but was necessary to do because of the spirit and the attitude that was evident in the church. And so he has reviewed that again and compared himself to the uh, other apostles and and the work of the other apostles, the the apostolic signature, if you will. What is the evidence that we have an apostle in our midst? What is the evidence that an apostle is simply as an idea of a messenger from God? And so what is the... Then he talks about the most eminent apostles. And so we go to the to the ones that we are most well aware of. And we know that there were 12. Um, Judas was replaced um, after his betrayal, so there still was 12. Um, but we know that uh, we have more of a record of, of Peter and, and uh, uh, James, John. Uh, we, we know those are the inner three. And Paul's going to compare himself and says there really uh, isn't any difference there between what you have received from me and what those that they minister to are receiving from them. That you haven't missed out on anything. Uh, And so he is willing to take that position, uh, lining himself up with them, not just in an arrogant kind of way. I think the tenure all the way through this passage has been, uh, I wish I didn't have to do this. I wish it wouldn't have to be said, but it had to be said. Uh, Again, they forced the issue. And so uh, he lines up. What is it that I... What are the markers? What are the signatures of apostleship? And he shared some of those already. He shares some others here. That the signs, the wonders, the... the, All the evidence that is there uh, was accomplished. And not just on occasion, but it says that uh, with perseverance. They were... They were produced 
not just one time to set the, the uh, to establish the fact, but rather that they persevered. They were they were often prevalent in Paul's ministry, even to the Corinthians, that they themselves saw signs, wonders, and mighty deeds in verse twelve. And so all of those were there, and he has to remind them of them. Uh, he has he has previously reminded them of of the message that he has spoken. He has reminded them of the of the access that he has had uh, to God's revelation. Uh, he has reminded them of what he has suffered for them and for the work of the, of the Word of God. And now he's going to add this to explain to them that if you're looking to someone to come to you so that you can have a complete picture or that you can be uh, have carry the credentials that you had an apostle in your midst. That idea. Uh, he shares with them that you haven't lacked any of that. You have had all of those. And we still have, to some degree, that same attitude, that same spirit in a lot of our churches today. And I know from your testimony, many of you have been exposed to that, that we set up a credential. We've talked about this in the past, so I don't want to take a lot of time here. And we say, well, you know, we have this person with this degree or this, you know, Dr. So-and-so is our pastor. Or he has this national ministry and, and uh, he has this TV program, radio program, and, and all of these uh, worldly ideas. And Paul says, okay, if, if, if you think that makes you a, a stronger, more complete, better church, uh, let me just share with you, you've had everything that the church in Jerusalem has had. You've, you've been given the same message, the same gospel, with the same power. The same signs, the same evidence. All those signatures of apostleship you have written on you. And so, if this is about you're trying to rate yourself in the, amongst all the churches, um, there's nothing lacking in what was brought to you. What was brought to you, Corinthians, was equal to what was brought to any other church by any apostle. Except for one thing. Paul says the one difference between me and these others that say, oh, you know, Paul's okay, but, you know, you're not really a church until... The big difference for you is that you had a man come to you who would never be a burden to you. He wouldn't take his livelihood from you. He wasn't interested in any of your goods, any of your services. He just was totally dependent upon God's provision. He worked for with his hands, a living. And so what you were robbed of was... Not any of the signs, not any of the power, not any of the message, not any of the revelations. None of that were you left out of the loop, that you are inferior. But rather, verse 13, I wasn't a burden to you. And if that's what I did wrong, that I did too much, then forgive me. And again, you can see the sarcasm there. You know, forgive me this wrong. You know, do you really think that's something that needs to be forgiven? Is that a sin that needs to be confessed? That I came to you with a message and with no intention of taking anything from you of this world because my hope is in another world. I have, I have a, a, a vision towards what I have waiting for me in heaven and so I am not going to allow anything of this world to stand between you and the gospel. And so I preach free of charge. I am willing to exert myself and labor earning my own way so that you can't have a complaint against the gospel and so there's nothing standing between you and the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so I didn't, wasn't going to be a burden to you even after you received Christ. Um, I wasn't interested in what you possessed. And he makes that statement a little later on, right? Um, I'm not after what is yours, but you. In verse 14. Uh, I'm not planning on being a burden to you. I've never asked you for anything. I'm not going to start. 
Which, so that tells you immediately that he's a little sarcastic up there, forgive me this wrong, right? He says, it's a wrong I'm going to perpetuate. I'm not going to change. I am still going to not be a burden to you. I will still pay my own way. I will still take care of my needs and yours. And I will be a, only an asset and not a burden um, in terms of your material needs. Now, remember who he's talking to. He's not tied to an impoverished inner city church. He's talking to maybe the wealthiest church that he has ever started. Certainly among the top of the wealthiest churches here in this city of Corinth. And so if you think of if there's any church that he could have taken a livelihood from and would have really assisted his ministry, this probably would have been at least in the top five. But he says, even among those who have the material means to care for me, I still want the testimony that I come free of charge. And it's not a sliding scale. Well, if you have a lot of money, I can come at a high price. If you don't have, I can come for free. There is no sliding scale for the man of God. He's going to preach to the king for the same price that he's going to preach to the Homeless. Paul says, I'm not going to be a burden. There cannot be any barrier between the message I need to preach and that you need to hear. There, there can't be a barrier that I create. Well, I can only come to you if you can promise me this much honorarium. Um, Paul would never have done that. We have men around that are doing that. Well, I'll come, but you need, I need my travel expenses covered and this and that. And, and Paul says, that's not ever going to be my intent. It is not what I'm going to do. Others are doing that. He doesn't necessarily directly condemn them, but he recognizes that one of the evidences, he's already talked about that, of a false teacher is that they are coming to fill their belly more than your soul. So we find this attitude within Paul, a philosophy of ministry that puts himself in the role of responsibility and looks at those that he ministers to in the comparison that he uses in verse 14 is as though you are dependent on him. You are his dependents, his children. And so I have responsibility um, to carry the load of spiritual nurturing and without any expectation of repayment. That I don't set my children up to take care of me, but rather I expend myself to set my children up to succeed on their own with no expectation of their care for me. That I'm there to care for them. And I thought that ended once they turned 18, and it doesn't. i got to tell you that. That responsibility doesn't go away. And I'm not even sure it goes away once they get out of college. Um, you just have that responsibility. This is the parent's continuous goal and aspiration is to, is to provide for, to direct, to encourage, uh, to lay up, if you will, for their children. And so... Uh, I am not waiting for my children to leave me an inheritance, I don't think. Uh, I think they're waiting for me to leave them one, right? And so it ought to be. And Paul says, I'm not looking to build something off of you, but rather to build you. That's my responsibility. the, the, The onus lies on my shoulders. The weight is there, and so I'm not... Uh, putting any weight on you other than the weight that the gospel demands of you, which is not monetary, but a measurement of righteousness. And we're going to get to that very quickly. And so he has, again, reviewed this and culminated it as we bear down on really his great fear for the church. Uh, And rightly so, historically uh, and into our modern day particularly. We... Before we get to that fear, 
Um, he's, there's going to be a verse that we're going to have to spend a little time on. Um, but there's one other aspect that we want to talk about, and that is uh, Paul's concern that not only was his testimony pure, but those that represented him was pure. And so he's going to reference the men that he sent to him. Uh, he sent two men to them, Titus and another brother. Um, they came, and did they have a different spirit? Uh, here are some men that had the, the letter of, of uh, approval of Paul, and thus they came with the same ministry spirit as Paul. And he says, listen, did, did they act any differently? Did they have different steps? Did they, have, did they take advantage of you? No, they were in the same. They had the same walk, the same spirit, the same steps. They, 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 they wouldn't have taken advantage of you because they know my pattern. And they're going to replicate that pattern. Because these have been ministry with me for many years. And, and Titus, Timothy, others, uh, Silas had ministered with Paul. They knew the, the routine. They knew the principles. They, they were living on them uh, for some time. And they were going to implement them similarly. And Paul says, not only is it me that has guarded you from having burdened with any material requirements for the ministry, but so have these that I've sent. And it sets them apart from all these others who have come into Corinth and caused division and really trying to seek a following after themselves rather than Christ. And so couched in all of this um, careful development of why they are uh, not inferior to any other church and what the only difference between them and some of the churches, uh, perhaps with some of the other apostles, uh, we come now to verse 15. And I have this circled and starred in my Bible. And that was well before I ever came to preaching it. Uh, it has been for some time. Uh, and it says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And this is the spirit. This is the philosophy that has driven Paul's choices to say, I won't be a burden to the churches. Is that I will prefer to be spend, to spend and be spent to uh, give everything I have and everything I am to pour myself out as a drink offering before God uh, for the benefit of the souls of men uh, in these churches, in these communities in which he ministers. And the drink offering is a fascinating thing to uh, take this thing and to pour it out before the Lord and to just pour it into the dirt. Like, what a waste. And frankly, um, I'm reading a little bit between the lines here, but from Paul's statement at the end of the chapter, I don't think I'm stretching it very far. Um, Paul has to be thinking that a little bit. Have I wasted my time? He asked the same question to the Galatians, you know, is, did you receive the gospel in vain? Is it worthless? But for Paul, he recognizes that like the drink offering that just gets spent, gets poured out, and it's just blopped on the ground, and you're like, what did that accomplish? It wasn't about the result in the soil. It wasn't the result of where that offering went. It was the manner in which it was given. It was the nature of the sacrifice within the heart and that fundamentally ministry is about pouring out for God with no expectation of getting anything back as a picture of your complete surrender to him, that all that I have is yours. And so I bring this offering, I pour it out, and there it is. It's on the ground. We can play it and we can make mud pies maybe or something. Um, but essentially it's poured out and it becomes worthless from a human perspective. But it was there to be a measure of the heart of the giver, of the one making the sacrifice. Are you willing to pour yourself out in an effort that, from the standpoint of everyone around you, is going, 
That's kind of a waste. And Israel didn't do this just once in a lifetime. It was a regular part. I mean, read the law, Leviticus, and look at the drink offerings. And some of the other offerings, for that matter, granted some went to the priests, and from there they got um, their food and, and drink and, and um, their provisions. Um, but that offering was just poured out. Some was just burned up. To what end? See, the measure wasn't the result. We have wet dirt. Okay, God's pleased with wet dirt. It wasn't, we need to produce wet dirt. Rather, it's a matter that we need giving spirits that are willing to acknowledge that God has a right to ask this of me. And Paul understood that fundamentally that God had the right to demand of him all of his resources, all of his energies to be poured out, even if from a human perspective it gets poured out and just makes wet dirt. That nothing grows, that nothing, that nothing is accomplished, that nothing is produced, and yet still Paul is going to pour himself out. I will spend all that I have and I will be spent. I will use up myself for your souls. There will be no thankfulness. There will be no results. I mean, if in the end, you don't, if this letter, <laughs> if these letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are ineffectual, and my visits are ineffectual, and you're still caught up in these sins at the end that he's going to talk about. For Paul, that's something, that's a sadness. That's a disappointment. But it doesn't make his effort empty and vain. It just doesn't do it. Why? Because it's about the expenditure, not the result. That God is measuring your willingness to expend yourself for Him. And frankly, I think we really don't have a good handle, and we've said this throughout this study, on what it means to be spent for God and to spend all that we have for the gospel to go forth with power and to be effectual in people's lives or to be ineffectual in their lives if they reject it. So he is gladly, very gladly, it's an emphatic statement, he will very gladly spend and be spent. But here's the result, the last half of the verse. Even though, the word though there, though, he very gladly will pour himself out though the more abundantly I love you the less I'm loved. Though that is the result it does not temper the earnestness by which Paul ministers. He'll continue doing it even though in response he's being spoken evil of, he's being disregarded, he is being marginalized, there's division, there's gross sin within the church, and all those things. But ultimately, you know, you know, Paul is strong in his letters, but he's weak in person. Um, all these accusations come against him. And... That's the result. But he says, he doesn't say, I, past tense, was spent and did spend. He doesn't say that. He says, I will. I will very gladly spend in the future and be spent in the future. I will do this. 
even though right now, as Paul looked at the circumstance, it seemed like it was, it was just throwing effort after foolishness. Because there was no result. And the more he poured into them, the, the more reaction he got against him. And Paul was not going to be deterred. He, he anticipates spending and being spent for them into the future. And his intentions seem very clear that he will do that whether they respond or not. And this really is the measure of godly leadership. And most of our pastors, and myself, I would have to put in that category many times, um, aren't up to it. In these past few weeks of preparation, I've noticed that God has challenged myself as I get ready to preach a message to get the privilege of trying to live it. (laughs) And this week was no different. I'm trying to live out this message. How much are we willing to spend and be spent with the result not being loved, but castigated? Of not being appreciated, but rather abused? Even, not just ignored, but even accused? That those that we take certain actions with regard to their sinfulness respond not by appreciation but by hatred and thinking that your love is hate when our expectation our desire our ambition is that they walk in righteousness and truth Paul's declaration here is a powerful one. And it sets the course for our future. That when we share in this attitude, this philosophy, um, we are guarded from discouragement. We are not guarded from disappointment. I think it's important that we distinguish between those. Um, a discouragement is something within me that uh, would inhibit or begin to make me question um, what I'm doing for God. I'm discouraged. I don't want to keep doing this. Uh, I don't want to pursue it any further. I am discouraged and it, that affects my behavior. Disappointment is understanding others' failures. And while we take some responsibility and strive to address those, um, those disappointments are real. Uh, And discouragement, though, is taking our eyes off of God and looking at the ground. We're looking at the mud we just created by pouring out our drink offering. (laughs) And we're just looking at the mud. Instead of so what we're supposed to do after we pour out the drink offering, that's look to the one we just poured it out for. We didn't pour it out for the dirt. We poured it out for the Lord. And discouragement takes your eyes off of that and looks at the mud. Disappointment rather um, looks at what could have been accomplished should uh, the people of God responded by faith, believing and trusting and following His truth and choose not to repeatedly in the end results or all the things that Paul is about to speak of. And that disappointment does not bring us to the point of walking away and quitting and, and throwing your hands up and say, what's the point? Disappointment rather calls us to work harder. Why? 
when people are just going to keep disappointing you. Because, remember, the one I'm pouring the drink offering out for isn't the dirt. And God will never disappoint. God never disappoints us. And so Paul is challenging the Corinthians to consider this fundamental philosophy of his ministry and the disappointing response that he's getting from them. And then in verse 19, as we jump forward, we find him talking about what was it all for. What was it all for that Paul speaks Christ to you? What was it all for? It wasn't for their encouragement. It was for your edification. That ultimately the purpose behind the preacher needs to be the edification, the building up, the strengthening and encouraging of the saints to walk in righteousness and truth. And Paul anticipates that that should be the result, but it doesn't necessarily make it the result. Because there is another element. It is not just his preaching with the right uh, attitude and the right perspective and with the truth. There's that facet. There's the facet the Holy Spirit must be in it. And certainly it must be dependent upon his work. But there is still a third factor that must be part of the equation. And that is your faith. That all of this can be put forward, but if you choose not to fully receive it, then it becomes ineffectual to you. But not in the spirit's category, and not in the preacher's category, not in the truth category. It does your, the ineffectualness of your Christianity um, is not because God failed, not because the truth failed, not because you didn't hear the truth, not because the Holy Spirit didn't do His job. There comes down to that final factor that men must, by faith, believe. They must obey. And Paul says, we've done all these things for your edification. We've tried to build you up. We've done it at no cost. We speak before God in Christ. We have given you all the materials that you need. We have given, you've had every advantage that any other church has had. Um, and you've had some of the best preaching that's out there for crown. Wow, they had Paul. Right? He's still preaching to us as we read this. If only we had a great preacher. Well, Corinthians had a great preacher. The Galatians had a great preacher which apparently he wasn't that great in the pulpit from what his own words say. But it wasn't sufficient because of the final factor. And fundamentally, the quality in terms of appearance, speech, uh, entertainment value, whatever you think makes someone a great preacher, um, those kinds of, of ancillary aspects of the preacher um, are not fundamental to your response. The truth is spoken. This motivation is there. Glorify God, the results aren't guaranteed. So Paul says, I've done all this for you. I've spent, I've, I've, I've spent, I will do it, I'll continue. Um, everything I've done has been for your edification. We, you have missed out on nothing. But in the end, Paul says, I don't have any confidence in you. I say, where does he say that? Well, in the first few words of verse 24, I fear. 
the church has gotten more than they deserve. The church has gotten the best preaching. They've gotten the Spirit. They've seen signs, wonders, great deeds. They've seen all of this. They have received this revelation. They have gotten all of these visits and contacts, these letters uh, from uh, God. I mean, if we recognize this as all Scripture, then the first recipients were receiving the very words of God, inspired by the Spirit upon Paul's pen. And ultimately, none of that demanded an outcome. None of that demanded the outcome of a godly, righteous, powerful, spirit-led church that was growing and multiplying and reaching the lost. Paul says, you've had all this advantage but I'm afraid for you. That you're going to squander all the advantage you've given. And yes, we are more advantaged than the Corinthians. I know that shocks you. Are you saying you're better than Paul? Um, my scriptures are better. They're fuller. They're complete. I believe the same spirit around here these days is the same spirit that was there. There is not a different spirit. We have a fullness of understanding of, of the historicity and some aspects of Scripture that weren't available in their day. We stand in a place that is more advantageous than the Corinthians. And we still have the same issue. For I fear lest that none of this was enough. But it was enough. Because it still was that final factor. That even with all this advantage of growing up in a quote-unquote Christian country, of having access to the Scriptures in your very own language, of being growing, so many of you, in a Christian home, of having access to uh, church services and Sunday school and Word of Life clubs and, and opportunities to memorize and to study and to hear God's Word. With all that advantage that you have, um, there's still, I fear lest, you waste it. Corinthians, I've given you everything, every advantage. And in the end, Paul says, I'm afraid that you're going to squander it. And I'm going to come and you're not going to be in a state of to receive me. And when that happens, we're going to have some issues. We're going to have, there's going to be some fireworks that if I come and you're not the way I would like you to be, and that is repentant and, and submissive to God and loving one another and, and responsive to the Spirit of God and righteousness and truth, that if I find you not that way, here's what's going to happen. This is just going to be an outbreak of strife because I will not tolerate it. I'm not going to come in there and be a mealy-mouthed person and just say, well, I shrug my shoulders, oh, what can we do about it? which is what most pastors are doing these days. Paul says, when I come, it's going to be contentious. I should be found by you such as you do not wish. I'm going to have to come in with a strong hand when I really want to come in with a loving disposition. There's going to be outbursts of wrath. There's going to be selfish ambitions, backbiting, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Because that's what happens when the truth of God encounters a resistance to that truth in the hearts of those called by His name. That is the natural consequence. That list. That when a hard-hearted church is confronted with a power of the truth spoken by a man of God, the contention 
is unstoppable. It is necessary. For if this man with the truth backs down, there is no hope for the church. We are lost. So he must stand his ground. Paul says, listen, I have to be this when I come. Because this is the truth. And this is what I've been preaching. This is what I've been living. This is what I stand for. And this must be established in your church. And then in the hard-heartedness of men that are not responsive, there is going to be resistance. And that resistance is always going to pour forth in these manners. That these are the evidences of resistance to truth. Contentions, jealousies, wrath, ambitions, backbiting, whisperings, conceits, and tumults. Yes, much of this is going to be generated by false teachers that they were tolerating in their midst. But most of it was going to be developed by their own hard hearts. It became desensitized to sin and desensitized to the Spirit's movement and was more interested in the things of this world, of their own pleasures, of their own importance. And again, we find this in the church today. We are more Corinthian than any other epistle uh, in terms of the condition the church being written to. Uh, We are there. We are way far away from the Judaizers, I think, in most of our churches. There's still a few out there that are more Galatian than they are Corinthian. But from what I can tell in the contact I've had with churches, uh, we're more Corinthian than anything. We tolerate error and we resist truth. Because truth makes demands of us that we don't like. And our self-importance, our self-worship... Um, prevents us from humbling ourselves. Paul recognizes there's going to be another visit, Lord willing. And he doesn't think it's going to go well. And he might even be chased out of town. That's happened before. He might even... And he expects it. He says, I I expect to be humbled among you. That is, I expect you to mistreat me. Paul says, I'm going to come and I expect you to mistreat me. I expect to be humbled among you. And I'll be saddened. I'll be disappointed. He says, I will mourn. I will weep. I will be disappointed. I will be sad. Why? Because of unrepentance. Many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, lewdness which they have practiced. See, what's going to sadden him and disappoint him isn't really the idea of him being humbled, of them saying, Get out of here, Paul. We're fed up with hearing your nonsense. We've got these guys. They've got the credentials. Who do you think you are? You're not one of the twelve. You didn't walk with Jesus. You have no claim to us. You can all, and Paul anticipates this. He says, listen, I'll be humbled, but that's not why he's mourning. He's not mourning over his condition in the eyes of the church. He is not worried about his credibility. He's not worried about his position, his station in their life. What is, brings him to mourning is the concept that they are going to be committed to sin. And all the backwash that is, that is associated with that for the Christian to be committed to sin and to resist any effort of godly men to pull them out of it. And because without that, There is no hope. If we reject the messenger of God and the message of God, there is no hope. Just as the world will have no hope 
of deliverance without the gospel, because there is only one way of salvation, so for the church there is no hope if we resist and, and, and the message of God's word. We resist this, there's no hope. If we shelve it, if we ignore it, if we think, well, you know, I, I think there's room for my sin in here somewhere. I mean, after all, didn't David do it? Sure, he committed murder. Go ahead. Oh, you thought I was referring to immorality, didn't you? Paul says, listen, what I'm going to mourn over is that there's uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness being practiced in the church, and you're not sorry enough to repent of it. This is our last Sunday of this year, and it gives pause sometimes to think back over the last year. We've had a very difficult year in this church. We have had two occasions where people come before us confessing sin, but not repenting of it. Not wanting to surrender themselves to accountability to a local church and, by extension, I believe, to God. Because the church is still His agent on earth. And this is cause for mourning. This is deep sorrow. And this makes this one very hard year to look back and rejoice over. And so I share where Paul's at. And the question comes in, are we prepared to spend and be spent even more to let them humble us with the hope that some will repent. But until that happens, we have to join Paul in mourning that they have been unresponsive to God's Word. They've been unresponsive to the Spirit's work in their midst. And the Corinthians were dealing with illness and death because of their disregard for aspects of God's Word, and they still weren't getting it. Not for lack of trying, for Paul has visited and written to them perhaps more than anyone else. They had every advantage. They had all the access that anyone could want to divine revelation. But that last factor kept them in sin. Kept them unrepentant. That last factor was their faith or lack thereof. Their unwillingness to surrender and in a very powerful and strong argument, Paul has taken them to task and destroyed every rational working that's in the heart and minds of the Corinthians and said, ultimately, you keep practicing your sin and you're not repenting of it. And for this, I'll mourn I'll let you humble me. Call me names, beat me up, throw me out of town. And that had happened to him plenty of times. My God will humble me among you. Yeah, God will allow that. My God will humble me among you. What a contrast to all the boasting he's had to do, right? Paul's prepared that he become the brunt and he would be more than happy to accept that kind of mistreatment. He would be more than happy to, to be God's agent in that condition and like Jeremiah being thrown into the pit. <laughs> God wants me down in the pit today. 
I'll serve him faithfully right here in the pit. Down in Egypt, I'll serve him faithfully down in Egypt. Joseph, in the prison, in the slavery, I'll serve him faithfully. In the lion's den, in the fiery furnace, God wants me to be humbled. And yet, we know what happens after humiliation is exaltation. Paul anticipates that. He says, my God will humble me in your presence. But I'm going to mourn that if that's not effectual, if it's not enough for you to have a genuine man of God come and humbly call you to obedience, to declare to you the truth at his own cost, demanding nothing of you, but please walk in righteousness and truth. Please, I beg you, be obedient to God's word. Please, leave your sin. Please, let God be at work in your life. Please. If that's not enough, I'll simply have to mourn for you. Because you're going to be left in your sin. We're going to, the next, just the next three weeks, we're going to be finishing up 2 Corinthians. But this is really the power of this, this part of Paul's letter. Why he has to establish his authority it wasn't for himself. It wasn't so that he would feel good about himself but rather that he could avoid the disappointment of having to mourn over a church caught in sin and unrepentant. It was necessary that he be identified as a man of God, not for his benefit, but for theirs, so that they would accept the message that he was giving them. And that message intended for your edification is what's going to strengthen the church. It's going to strengthen your life and your walk with God. And this is the objective of every godly preacher. Declare of God's word, not just professional clergymen, but for everyone ministering the word of God. Sunday school and we're life clubs and skate park at the wherever. If this is your spirit, this is your objective, and yes, we mourn when people reject it. And I'm okay with God humbling me among others if it means that they have opportunity to come to Christ or come to righteousness. It's okay to be humbled. God uses that mechanism. I'm pretty sure that he used that with his own son. He was humbled for us. He was humbled among us for us. And Paul says, while we can say men are doing it, ultimately Paul says, you know, my God will humble me. And I'm more than happy to allow God to consider me not only the offerer of the drink offering, but to consider me the drink offering itself. I'm okay with God pouring me out if it means your deliverance. But if not, we'll have mourning, real mourning. Real sadness, genuine disappointment. That's the alternative. If that final factor isn't found in the church. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. For your word before us, we thank you for its truth and it is sobering um, that we find ourselves comparably more like the Corinthians than anyone else and the church, the Western church at least. And Lord, we pray that we might respond, that we might fill in that final factor of faith, that we might believe this truth and that it applies to us, to me. And that the work of your servants, of your spirit, of your word might be effectual here in this church by calling us out of this world into righteousness 
we might conform ourselves to your truth no matter the cost. Knowing that there is joy there when we fully surrender ourselves to you. Lord, we do pray that you might raise up a righteous body here. We know to do that, it needs to be composed of righteous individuals. And that personalizing of your truth. And I cannot accomplish that. And ultimately, we know that you don't either. That is dependent upon the individual. Lord, we pray that as you are faithful in convicting of leading us into truth and wisdom, that we as a church might maintain faithfulness of preaching that truth and wisdom. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.